It's time for another episode of Espresso Yourself with Chuck. And now, coming to the mic, your host, Mr. Chuck Knapp. Well, I am really excited to have Toby Cook, the Director of Public Relations for the University of Kansas Health Systems, with us today on Espresso Yourself with Chuck. Toby, welcome. Thank you, Chuck. It's great to see you again. I wish it was in person, but this is good enough, I guess. Well, hopefully we can do something in person. Uh, You're not that far away. Uh, You are literally in the Kansas City area, right? And so that's correct. um, But that's not your hometown. Can you tell us a little bit about growing up in Independence? uh, Sure. what your youth was like and what you thought you wanted to be when you grew up back then. Well, I'm, um, I may be a rare bird in that I knew what I wanted to do since I was about nine years old. The story I tell is that I wanted to be a major league baseball player when I was eight. I had a terrible first year of little league and I realized that that probably wasn't going to happen. So I decided I wanted to be a play by play announcer for a major league baseball team when I was nine, and that led me into a career in radio, which led me to a career in TV. And I kind of forgot about the play-by-play stuff. Um, It was clear to me that people that did that got their start fairly early. Um, So that's how I initially decided that I was going to be in, um, in broadcasting. And it took me to a lot of different places and a mutual friend of ours who I also grew up with, a guy named Derek Schmidt, who went on to be the attorney general for the state of Kansas for several years. I always love to tell this story because you and Derek and I knew each other at one point many, many years ago and kind of um, saw each other when you spent a little bit of time in independence. But Derek was the valedictorian of the class of the Independence High School graduating class of 1986. And he was always the smartest guy in the room. And we were at a friend's house one day and his, uh, some, an adult, another adult asked his parents, what what does Derek want to do after high school or college? And they said, he doesn't know. And I remember uh, somebody saying, I think that's just fine. And we put too much pressure on ourselves to know when we're in elementary school or middle school or even high school. And my kids have been similar to that. You know, they got to a point where they weren't exactly sure what they wanted to do. And I always told that Derek Schmidt story because Derek ended up doing just fine. He was um, he was the Senate majority leader. He was he worked for a couple of United States senators He ran for governor um, and he didn't know what he wanted to do when he was 17 years old. And he kind of figured it out in um, in college and after college was one of two who was admitted to Georgetown Law School from the state of Kansas after going overseas to get his master's. So it works both ways. Some some people know what they want to do early on and some people don't. And I think both work just just okay. (laughs) (laughs) Well, and so broadcasting uh, certainly was part of that early career path for you. Uh, And you said you were in different places. um, And and obviously your interest evolved a little bit. Yeah. Um, But what was your first job? My very first job was at KIND Radio in Independence when I was 16 years old. And I did that a little bit, partly because I wanted to be 
in radio and partly because my two older brothers both worked at the radio station. So um, KIND was a small radio station in the middle of the dial, 101.7 FM and 1010 AM. And kids like me could get jobs there. And I just happened to have enough chutzpah that I decided that I wanted to also be on the air. And I had my own Saturday afternoon radio show from noon to two. Um, and most of what I did was sit in the radio booth and watch the needle bounce. That's an old way of saying that if you go into radio stations now, it's all electronic. It's all everything else. But back then you would see this needle bouncing and I would sit there and I would babysit these broadcasts where this broadcast called the Dick Clark National Music Survey. And it was very similar to a famous program, um, America's Top 40, but it was a countdown show where they would talk about the 40 biggest um, uh, 40 biggest um, hits of the year and or of the week. And then I would do that, the same thing with Royals baseball. And as I got a chance to be on the air just a little bit more and get a little bit better at it, I thought, well, you know what? I might actually be able to make a career in this. And I went into journalism school and graduated from Pittsburgh State University. They had a fledgling communications uh, program. And my very first job in the business was at a low power TV station in Junction City, Kansas. It's a station that doesn't exist anymore, but it was owned and operated by the local newspaper. And I did that for six months as a sportscaster and then moved back to Pittsburgh and eventually ended up at KOAM TV. And KOAM was the CBS affiliate in the Pittsburgh Joplin market. And that's really where I cut my teeth because I was a general assignment reporter. Eventually with a buddy of mine and I started the first morning show in the Pittsburgh Joplin market. And, and that's kind of where it, it launched. So it was, a, you know, I had an interest in something, I pursued it, and then eventually I was able to turn it into a career. And at that point, and I remember I was in independence when you were working at KOAM. So yeah. you were a local celebrity, a regional <laughs> celebrity, right? Uh, at that point, were you still thinking maybe play-by-play -play or sports broadcasting? Or had you in your mind thought, well, maybe this is more along the lines of what I want to do in broadcasting? Yeah, I, I somehow knew that guys who ended up being play-by-play -play announcers for the Royals started off doing lots of play-by-play -play for high schools and lots of play-by-play -play for small colleges, and they moved their way up. And there was a moment when I was probably 25 to 30 years old where I was like, I may have missed that window, but I was still fascinated with it. And I would, when we were living in Kansas City, I, um, you know, I, listen to the Royals on the radio all the time. I watch the broadcasts all the time. I guess I did that in Pittsburgh and um, Barbara and I, my wife, we moved to Lynchburg, Virginia for three years between KOAM and when I went to work at Fox 4 in Kansas City. And I ended up talking to somebody when there was a change at the Royals and I asked them about play-by-play -play and they said, nah, so that, that comes from a very specific talent pool. I still think that if I'd have pushed it, I might've gotten an interview <laughs> because simply by listening to a thousand Royals games and also having a broadcast career, I think I could have faked my way to it, but 
maybe not have gotten the job offer because it wasn't the natural thing. It was more like a, I'm going to do this as a, a specific, I'm going to give it a shot. I could fake my way through it. But the real play-by-play announcers, um, Bob Davis, who was in Fort, uh, was doing play-by-play for Fort Hayes uh, football and basketball games, eventually ended up as an announcer for the Royals. His son, um, Stephen Davis, who has done some play-by-play for the Royals, but um, is doing KU women's basketball right now. These were people that had literally grown up doing play-by-play, and I had only uh, flirted with it a little bit. So I'll tell you a quick story. When I was in Junction City, um, I was the sports anchor, and we had a news guy named Gary Brower. And Gary had come over from Kansas City, and he was doing news, and I was doing sports. And Gary still works for a television station in Kansas City. He's with the NBC affiliate now. Um, He's probably 60 years old. But Gary would often ask me, well, I, and it's so funny that I remember this name too, but there was, um, there was a soccer player by the name of Goran Ivanizovic. And I couldn't remember where he was from, but I would ask Gary questions about sports all the time. And I was quickly exposed because while I love the Royals, loved the Chiefs, and I loved play-by-play broadcasting. I wasn't a pure, like, sports guy who knew the third-string quarterback um, or the third-string tight end at Iowa State. And I would hang out with all these sports people, and they knew all of this. So I would ask Gary, you know, tell me more about – maybe Gordon Evans – was he a, a tennis player? Maybe maybe Wimbledon was happening at the time. Anyway, I had to ask him questions about it. There was a congressman by the name of Jim Slattery from Kansas – at the time, and he would come to me and Gary would say, Toby, is is Slattery a Democrat or a Republican? And I knew all of that. And I thought, you know what? I'm I'm a news guy. I'm a news guy who really loves the Royals and loves uh, sports broadcasting. So that's how I ended up being in news for 15 years. It, it suited me a little bit better. Right. So you were in Virginia. I had uh, not remembered that. Uh, but then you had an opportunity to return to the Kansas area. Uh, I think Fox four is actually in Missouri probably, but um, tell us about how that opportunity came about and, you know, what, what took place to get there and your thought process and coming back. I don't know what market you were in, in Virginia, but Kansas city is a, you know, a large market. So what, tell us about that period of time and, and that adjustment. And I, and I don't know if it's changed a lot. I've been out of the business for about 15 years, um, but I imagine that it's similar in that when you are in broadcasting, especially in TV, most people start off at small stations in small markets, and then they try to move their way up. And this part has changed in that it is possible for somebody to graduate from college and land in Wichita or Kansas City a lot sooner in their career than they used to be able to. But when I was doing it, you started off in small markets, and there are 200-plus television markets across the country, um, and they're ranked. So you've got New York, one, Los Angeles, two, Chicago, three, Philadelphia somewhere in there, Houston somewhere in there. Kansas City at the time was about 28. It was the 28th largest market. Now it's in the 30s, very similar to a Cincinnati um, 
a Charlotte, North Carolina, Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania, we get lumped in in that group. And when I started with the Pittsburgh Joplin radio station, KOAM-TV, we were at market 146. Now, it was a strong 146. It was a very good small market. We had a station in Pittsburgh, and we had two stations in Joplin. So the NBC and the CBS were in Joplin. And in Topeka, Topeka is a smaller market than that, but the, um, but they had you know three television stations and they were kind of solid at the time, especially in the 70s and the 80s, <clears throat> into the 90s and 2000s. So it was all about climbing the ladder, you know, go from a small market to a medium-sized market to a large market. And so I got to make the jump from the Pittsburgh Joplin market to the Lynchburg Roanoke, Virginia market. And it was a what we called a hyphenated market, meaning that there was one station in one city and a couple of other stations in another city. So there were two stations on the Roanoke side of the Blue Ridge Mountains, and there was one station on the Lynchburg side. And I was there for three years and then got to make the jump to Kansas City. And that's when you're feeling like you're doing real time television, because um, there were four stations that were duking it out. They were um, really trying to, they were competitive. You had the Kansas City Star, which was huge at the time. You know, newspapers have become a completely different animal than they used to be. And when I started in 1998, it was all about the competition between the four stations. So it was Channel 4, Fox 4. There was KCTV 5, which is a CBS affiliate. KMBC Channel 9, which was the ABC affiliate, still is. And then KSHB, which is the NBC affiliate. And we, you know, it was it was a ratings competition day after day to see who could get the most ratings, which would then dictate how much you could charge for advertising, which showed how much money the TV station uh, could uh, make. And that affected salaries and all of that. Um, and so that's how I you know, from the moment I got to Lynchburg, I was looking at the next market because generally in TV, you had to move on in order to move up. And if you wanted to make a living at it, you know, you'd scrape by and you were broke, but you were having a blast, but you'd make barely enough to live off of for a while. And then it was finally when you could get to more of a Wichita, Spring, uh, not Springfield, uh, uh, Oklahoma City, Kansas City size market then you know you you had sort of made it into the top 40 and you could really do your thing so i was looking at kansas city from probably the second week that i was in lynchburg just to see if i could make it happen and at the time we would send out resume tapes so um these were old i mean it's so funny now it just seems like a, a dinosaur time but we would have these tapes that we would have all of our work on and it was recordings of us being out in the field and us anchoring the news. And we would literally mail them all over the country to news directors who would get these stacks of resume tapes and they would plop them in a, a machine and they would watch them. Well, now it's all online and you just send them a link and all they have to do is click on their computer. But I managed to uh, get noticed on one of my resume tapes in Kansas City at Fox 4 which was very gratifying to me because I had gone and talked to the news director at Channel 9 at one point when I was back in Kansas City. And he said, Toby, you're, you've got potential, but you're not ready for Kansas City yet. 
And then I had gotten a note. I should have kept the note. I don't know where it is, but I had gotten a note from somebody at um, KSHB saying, Toby lacks the um, physical and voice maturity for a market this size. Have him keep working, which was fair enough because I looked like I was 16 years old into my 30s. But I did get a job at Fox 4 within a couple of months of that. And I always wanted to hold that over the person's head. <laughs> and and then I also had to admit that, God, I for years, I just heard people say over and over, you look so young, you look like a kid, which was not a great compliment to a 30-some-year-old who was trying to make his way in TV. But that's how I ended up there. And it really speaks to perseverance. It speaks to not giving up. It's, you know... I, I've come to understand in my career that these kind of breakthroughs from Lynchburg, Virginia, back to Kansas City don't happen in a, a quick amount of time. They happen after a few years of just going in and doing it over and over and over and over. And you never know when that breakthrough is going to happen. So that's how I made that transition. Great. So you had to be persistent, had yeah. confidence in yourself yes, and knew what your dream was. Um, so you got to Kansas City and you made it another change from broadcasting to, and I don't remember what your title was, but tell us how you got to the Royals organization. Yeah, this was kind of a full circle thing for me, wasn't it? Because I wanted to be a play-by-play announcer for the Royals. I listened to the uh, on the radio every night and I got into broadcasting because of the Royals. And then sure enough, nine years after I ended up going to work at Fox 4, where I did a morning show. Um, I got an opportunity to go work for the team. And the way that came about was like a lot of things in life, it's not how you plan it. It's just what life uh, presents to you. I got a call out of the blue one day from the Royals asking if I would come MC a Royals Charities Gala. That was their 501c3. That was the, uh, the, the nonprofit that the Royals were. They would raise a bunch of money and then give it away to organizations all over town. And I said, absolutely. And I went and I had a blast. I worked without notes the whole night because I knew the team backwards and forwards. And I found out later that the reason why they wanted me to come MC the event was because I always said nice things about the team on the air. And the team was terrible at the time. This was um, 2005 and they were, um, in last place in the American League Central a lot. And this was right as Dayton Moore, the general, ma- the new general manager of the Royals, was about to be hired. They asked me back the next year, that was 2006, and Dayton had been hired five weeks before that. And then I had a conversation with the president of the club, Dan Glass, who said, you know, Toby, if you're ever looking to get out of the TV thing, you might be a an opportunity, you might be a, um, a candidate for this position that I want to create, where it would be a hybrid between running all of our community and charity initiatives and also doing some PR, which was, you know, tailor-made for me. And he knew that because he watched our morning show every day. And so he had kind of become a fan of our morning show. And I, of course, was a fan of the Royals. And again, <clears throat> what is the saying about luck? It's when Um, opportunity and perseverance meet. That's not exactly how they say it, but I really do believe that that moment happened not because of dumb luck, 
but because I just happened to be doing what I had been doing for several years in the business. And then this moment happened and I was able to jump at it. And I love to tell people also that, sure, that sounds like, well, that's never going to happen to me. Um, I couldn't have something that lucky happen to me. Well, believe me, there have been many, many times that opportunities have come my way that I wasn't ready for, that I wasn't prepared for, that I wasn't being groomed for through the natural course of my career, you know? Um, so lots of stuff comes our way that it just keeps going because it wasn't the right time, but it just happened to be the right time. And I was able to force the president of the Royals hand. I was able to say to him, hey, listen, and this is going to sound like a bigger deal than it is, but I'm about ready to re-sign a contract with Fox 4 because we worked on what we called personal services contracts. So we would sign a contract for two or three years and then we would renew. And it was mostly to protect the TV station so that somebody wouldn't come and they would train them and they would put them on the air. And then six months later, they get a better offer in Denver and they leave. This kept you on the air for a particular amount of time. And it wasn't that I couldn't get out of my contract at Fox 4 to go do something completely different. It was just going to be bad form. Um, so I was able to say to him, if you're serious, if you really are interested in bringing me on board, can we do this now? rather than several months down the line. And that worked in my favor. And so that's how I got the job with the Royals in 2006. Wow. And so it was a new position. They had some idea, but it sounds like maybe you got to somewhat create the position, build the airplane in the air, so to speak. Is that accurate? Or That's exactly right. And I wasn't the first person that Dan Glass thought of. There was a, a person in Cincinnati that was kind of like me, um, who had both a community services background. All throughout my TV career, I did a lot of appearances for nonprofits in all of the markets that I was at. And we affiliated ourselves with organizations. So I was kind of familiar with the nonprofit world. With Royals Charities, it's not exactly like those nonprofits. It exists and the Royals would pay the light bill. They would take care of the overhead and they then pay people to do nice things for them. But I had enough experience around there that I could understand that world. And then I had been in broadcasting and, and, and such. And a lot of good broadcasters have gone on to the PR world because they're, they're similar uh, positions. And so I was a, like he said, a candidate for it. And the first couple of years was really a lot of just feeling it out. What are we going to do? How are we going to make this happen? Well, the first thing I did was um, I was just telling a group this uh, this week in my job with the University of Kansas Health System. The first thing I did was I started planning for the next home opener that was going to be coming up. I joined the team in August of 2006, and there were two months left in the baseball season, and that was awesome because of the 20 games left in the season, I got to see how the operation worked without there being much of an expectation because we were about ready to wrap up the season. So we did that. We had an off season. The very next um, opening day, which would have been in April of 2007, I was ready and I contacted all of the television stations and I said, we'd like to have you out 
um, on opening day and you can do all of your morning show live shots from the stadium. We'll turn the lights on at 4 a.m. We'll have the video board going. We'll have the uh, fountains going. And the reason I did that was because, I mean, six, seven, eight times as a Fox 4 reporter, I was out live at the stadium standing in a dark parking lot with a dark stadium behind me. I had video and I had graphics that I could talk about and I had some um, props, but I always wanted to be in the stadium and the Royals just weren't set up to do that because opening day is a really, really long day. And the last thing that they wanted to say yes to was getting there at 4 a.m. and turning everything on. But I wanted to, and I was in a position to do that because I didn't have to, I didn't technically have to be staffed until the game was over and two and a half hours later, I could be the early morning guy. And we did it the first year. We got all four stations to come out. They did multiple live shots. You know, be careful what you wish for because that became a thing. And so every year my department would start our day at, you know, I used to get there at 4 a.m. Then I needed about a 15 minute head start. So I would get there at 3.45 a.m., and that meant a 2.45 a.m. wake-up call on opening day for a game that wasn't going to end until 6.30 or 7 o'clock that night. Um, but it was a blast. So I was able to dive in on certain things. And then there were other things that I wasn't, that this wasn't a part of my expertise that I had to learn over time. Um, and so those first two years, I described it as with this side of my brain, I just went after it. And the other side of my brain, I just took things in and I made lots of mistakes and I tried things that didn't work and I found some things that did work. And the funny thing was that the Royals were still not a very good baseball team, but they were building. Dayton Moore had come in and he had completely revamped the farm clubs. He had completely revamped the front office and he was starting this process of them getting good. And we were able to kind of figure out what we were doing under the radar until the team started to become competitive a few years later. And by that point, we were ready to go. A, a couple of things. I and I want to talk about what you're currently doing, but there are a couple of things still with, with your association with the Royals I wanted to visit about. Uh, before that, I wanted to give a shout out to the Royals charities who um, granted Jag K with some money oh, good. this year. And so we, we certainly appreciate that. And I, this seemed like a good opportunity to say something publicly, but um, the world series, I mean, you mentioned that they were getting better. The, the farm system was, was being developed. What was that like? Just the, I mean, the year before we won, it was pretty exciting, but what was that season like? Uh, not very many people will be able to experience something like that. And you were right in the, the thick of it. So can you just tell us a little bit about that World Series season and winning it and and then the business side of it, too? I mean, I, you know, people left after that. And and I'm just I'm curious. I think our, our listeners would be as well. You bet. It's it sort of went back to the beginning of my time with the Royals where Dayton Moore came on and everything changed. And then we renovated Kauffman Stadium in 2009, and that seemed like the next big thing. Then we announced in 2010 that we were hosting the 2012 All-Star Game. 
And then we hosted the 2012 All-Star Game. And at that All-Star Week, there was a parade at the Country Club Plaza. And it was six people deep. And Major League Baseball at the time told us this might be the best all-star experience we've ever had. Kansas City threw everything at it. And the owners, the Royals owners, David Glass, the owner, and Dan, his son, the president, and Dayton Moore, and um, Ned Yost, the manager at the time, they all kind of agreed, this city is ready, and we got to go for it. And People who follow the Royals closely might remember that we had a winning season in 2013 and we hadn't had a winning season in 10 years and not very much before that when the Royals were very, very good. It had been 29 years since they had been back to the playoffs and they got into the playoffs that last week of the season in 2014. But 2013 ended with a grand slam home run in the bottom of the ninth inning of a tied game. And I just remember just going into the off seasons thinking we're ready. And we ended up going to the playoffs in 2014, won a bunch of games in a row. And as much of a gut punch as it was to lose to the San Francisco Giants in game seven of that year, it was a magical season. In some ways, it was more magical than 2015 when we won it all, because it had been the first time that we had gone through it. And as an employee, I, um, you know, I don't know that it really felt real until we won that wild card game uh, against the Oakland A's in a thrilling fashion in 2012 um, that we were actually in this thing. And then we just kept winning and winning. And it was like, we, we have a chance to go to the ALCS. We're going to the World Series. We have a chance to win the World Series. We were in San Francisco and we were up two games to one. I remember after the game, I probably jinxed us, but as soon as we won that game, I turned to somebody and I said, we are two games away from winning the World Series. And we didn't even know if we were going to make the playoffs, you know, several, a couple of weeks before that. So everything that was happening was happening in just this magical, exciting form. We were winning games late. Um, we were coming from behind. And the most gratifying part of that whole thing besides getting to be having a front seat of it and being in the front office was seeing how the city, how the region, how the Midwest came alive. And it was just this Royal celebration. And we would tell people, those of us men of our age, Chuck, we would tell them what it was like when the Royals were good in the seventies and eighties. And I said, if you know, as great as the chiefs have been of late, I think this is still a baseball town. And when we get good, you're going to see it. Well, it surpassed even my expectation. It was just incredibly magical. Something also happened right after we lost game seven. There was a little something that kind of went off in my head after game seven that I feel like I heard up until we won it all in game. We won. Let's see. Did we win it in five? We won it in five in 2015 in New York. Until we won it, then it was like a, well, we're going back. We have to go back. We got that close. Well, teams don't go back to back to the World Series very often. So it was kind of a lot for us to just assume we were going back. And, and seeing how, you know, the lack of success that the team has had since then, this is a magical little window that Major League Baseball teams go through when they 
have an opportunity to compete for a championship. But it was a crazy wild ride. One of the greatest days in Kansas City history was two days later when we hosted the um, the World Series parade. And uh, um, surreal, exciting. I thought it would last. <laughs> it didn't. You know, we had a in 2016 and 17, we had every chance to go back to the World Series, but we couldn't get back into the playoffs, you know, and things kind of stumbled. So it was it was incredible. Right. So all of these really tremendous highs in your career and and then the Royals changed ownership and yep. things changed in other ways within the organization and you were looking for a different opportunity. So yep. tell us about kind of dealing with that period of your life, how you then found this other really cool job that you have now. What was it? Because I... I remember talking to you at that mm -hmm. time and you weren't, you weren't just trying to find something you were trying to find the right thing. Yeah. And so some people may not have that approach. So tell us how you dealt with that period of your life to get where you are now. You bet. So John Sherman bought the club from the glass family in November of 2019. And then we had the pandemic. And for most, the first half of what would have been the season, we didn't play baseball. Then we did play baseball in July and or in August and September of that year. We had 30 home games. We had 30 road games, no revenue coming in, just a trickle from radio and TV advertising, but we didn't have any, we couldn't sell any tickets. I was at several of those 30 games and it was weird to be sitting in the stands or sitting in the stadium with no uh, fans in the stands. Um, Long about was well, sometime in the off season, um, they made the decision that they were going to revamp the front office. I will say this: I it, it was a jolt when it happened the day that I found out that I was my position was being eliminated, and that we were reorganizing. They were very professional about it, but it wasn't a big surprise for a couple of reasons. One, when new owners come in, they generally would like to have their people. And I was kind of the people from the regime before. Um, I was a little hurt, a little disappointed. I'm only saying this because I want people to, I want young people to understand that you could face something like this. And I'm 50 some years old and I've never been without a job in my life and I've never been let go from a position before. Well, I walked out of there with great relationships and my head held high. They told me that. Um, they said, this is a decision that we're making in terms of reorganizing the facility, but they were very good to me on a severance. So they, it made, it made it possible for me to be a little picky. They also, I'm convinced, um, said some very nice things about me to the University of Kansas Health System, which was very helpful and also appreciated hospitals tend to hire, um, in slow motion. So there was a period of time. <laughs> between when I knew this position was available and when I got hired where I was sweating it a little bit. Um, and there was some fear. There was a, some frustration. Um, I knew that things were going to work out and they did. Thankfully, I was able to score what really was the job that I had identified that I wanted, which was this director of public relations position. 
Um, and it came about in um, the winter of 2021. It was actually fairly quick. There, there, I spent some time with people who were also looking for jobs, um, professional people like me. It's, you know, again, it's one thing if you're 30 or even 40, but you can make a position change pretty quickly. You start getting into your 50s and you're the breadwinner of the home and you've been doing this for a long time. You hope you're in a position where you can be selective. And I was able to score this very, very good job. Nothing guaranteed, but it happened for me. Um, the biggest lesson that I learned in all of it was the power of relationships and networking. And here's what I mean by that. Um, I had to learn very, very quickly that I had a large network but I didn't have as many relationships as I wanted. And what I mean by that is when I was in television, spent nine years in TV in Kansas City, I came into contact with a lot of people. In my 14 years with the Royals, I came in contact with a lot of people. In TV, it was transactional. I contacted somebody, I needed to do a story, I did the story for that day, moved on to the next thing. In baseball, I was the host most of the time. People were coming to me because they wanted to be a part of the Royals and they wanted to be at a game or they wanted a player to come and do a visit. And so I found myself where they needed me a lot more than I needed them. So it was easy for me to have this transaction. And I loved doing it. It was fun to facilitate these things, but then move on to the next thing, then the next thing, the next thing. Then you're sitting there without a job and you're looking for the next position and you want to call these people and you feel a little odd because you haven't talked to them in a couple of years. And, oh, hi, I'm calling to catch up. And, oh, by the way, can you keep an eye out for positions that I might be good for? And so I got in contact with a couple of people that were kind of experts at networking. And I, I would like to say that this can be... Um, advice for somebody who is out of a job and looking for one middle of their career, or when you're just starting out, which I know is your focus. Talk to one person after the other, after the other, after the other. Not specifically for a job, but just to get to know them and ask them questions about what they do. And generally, you'll get another contact or two from them. And those two people will get you another couple of contacts and it's exponential. It grows from there with the idea that one day something's going to pop up. And that's kind of what happened to me. And I got a lot of great advice from a guy named Eric Morgenstern, who was a longtime PR fixture in Kansas City, who ran a company called Morningstar um, Communications. And... <clears throat> strangely crazy, as many times as we interacted with each other, we ended up being neighbors. I could walk to his house from here. It's, and he's re uh, retired, but Eric gave me, he sat down with me and he didn't have to do this, but he gave me a whole scenario of, okay, what's your severance or what's your savings? What's your financial situation? What do you want to do? And what are you good at? And let's come up with a plan based on all of that. And you will be able to think now, how picky can I be? How much of this is, a, I need a job yesterday. How much of it is, 
I'm, I've got these skills and these are the companies that might be in, you know, as a possibility. And he kind of laid it out for me. It was better than anything that I had heard, you know, growing up or in high school or college. And so the experience with me is that it was a tremendous learning experience. And while I wouldn't wish losing a job on anyone, especially when they're further down the road, it was a great thing that happened to me because I was able to do this, which was to create not only a network of people that I got to know over that period of time, but also a bunch of relationships that I'm trying to nurture. And I'm going on a little bit about this, but just a couple of days ago, I got a reach out from somebody who I, who I work with with the Royals who went to work somewhere else. They don't love their job. They're trying to think about what they want to do. And I immediately said to them, you want to grab coffee? I wouldn't have done that a few years ago. I might've talked to them, you know, whatever. But Eric said, "Go." I said, how am I going to ever repay you for this, Eric? And he said, by helping somebody else, by passing it along. And so that's, that's the biggest thing that I learned through all of it was um, developing a network of relationships. And I ended up finding out after a short amount of time, I really like this. I really like getting to know these people on a different level other than just a transactional level. Right. The old cliche is not what you know, but who you know. And then yeah. beyond that, it's not who you know, but who knows you. Yes. Because <laughs> you may have that big Rolodex. I don't think our kids know what a Rolodex is, mm -hmm. but um, <laughs> you may have a big contact file of people you've come into contact with or had the transactions. But if they don't truly know you, it may not matter. Yeah, so. that's exactly right. Well, so tell us about your current job, um, because it sounds really cool. I saw something on social media recently where the chiefs were in visiting patients. And so tell us what you're doing now and um, how someone else who may be interested either in working for uh, a huge healthcare system or even specifically a public relations job, how they might prepare for something like that. You bet. Um, we have, we're kind of support staff to the real stars with, who are the clinical people, the doctors and the nurses and those people who take care of patients. University of Kansas Health System has a main campus in Kansas City. Um, we've got a couple of other campuses in Kansas City in the suburbs as well. Uh, we have a campus in Great Bend, Kansas. We have a partnership with St. Francis Hospital in Topeka. Um, we are we kind of been rated the best Kansas City hospital and the best hospital in Kansas? We have patients from all 50 states, from about 20 countries. It's a nationally and world-renowned healthcare system. It's big, it's impressive. Lots of things going. It's world class. It's incredible. And the stars of the show are the doctors and the nurses and people who take care of patients and save people's lives. What we do in a department called marketing and corporate communications is that we go tell people about what they do. We do it both to recruit patients to try to encourage people to come to our places for healthcare. We do it to recruit physicians and other professionals to come work here. And my job as director of public relations really centers around making Kansas City, Kansas and the region aware of us and to create ambassadors 
so that they'll say nice things about us to other people. And it could be a potential patient. It could be an elected official. It could be the cities and counties where we operate. Just this general public relations of connecting the health system to the community and the community to the health system. I work uh, by number one, my job on a daily basis is to protect and uphold the good name of the University of Kansas Health System. PR guy, make sure I protect our brand. The other thing that I do is connect us to influencers around town and around the state who will advocate on our behalf. And this is really technical stuff, but we got created back in 1998 as an act of the Kansas legislature where we were separated legally from the University of Kansas and the University of Kansas Medical Center. That's where people go to learn how to become doctors and nurses and medical people. And we got separated out into our own entity as the hospital. So our side treats patients. We give patient care. But we share a campus with the medical school. The medical school trains people. The professors over there are doctors in our hospital. The students who are learning to be doctors and nurses train at our hospital. But we're a separate entity. And so we have a reason, even though we're not state funded, we get no money from the state whatsoever. Where I work, um, we have to keep good relations with legislators because they could at a moment's notice say, we don't want the hospital authority anymore and they could uh, uh, eliminate it. That's not going to happen, but we also uh, maintain good relations with um, elected officials. So that's some of my job. I'm not in government relations, but I do work with them because the things that I do kind of dovetail into what they do. We have an economic development department. We have a th philanthropy department which is big time for us because we are nonprofit. So we make our money from what patients pay, with the bills that they pay. Um, we borrow a little bit on, um, this, um, on the bond market and we raise a whole bunch of money from people who wanna see us do great things in healthcare. And so I interact with all of those departments um, primarily for the purposes of making people fans of the health system. And what type of staff do you have to support those endeavors? Well, just like the Royals at times when I was first starting off there, I was a one-man band. And I'm kind of a one-man band at the health system right now. Um, my department is public relations. But what I basically do is all the stuff that I do gets connected to other departments. We have about 30 people on our team um, that work in marketing, media relations, physician relations, which I think is fascinating that it's in the marketing department, but it's physician relations. Our job is to come alongside all of our doctors and make sure that they have what they need to be able to uh, communicate with people. Um, and we have a very robust internal communications department whom I work with all the time because we have, well, when I started at the health system a year, almost two years ago, we had 13,000 employees, both in Kansas City and across the state. Now it's bumping up to about 20,000 because 
Uh, we announced um, several weeks ago that Olathe Health is becoming a part of our system. So that got us up to about 20,000. And the reason we have such a big internal communications department is because our largest audience that consumes our communications is our employees. So, and they all get an email from us every day. You know, I help write it where we say, this is what's happening around the health system today. So you came up through broadcasting, but if someone thinks that public relations is what they would like to do, what would you suggest they do to prepare for that or get in, in involved in some way? It, what it all comes down to me is the ability to communicate. And so oftentimes public relations people come from a communications or journalism background because that gives you the um, information you need to take big, um, maybe complicated uh, ideas and get them down to bite-sized pieces, the kind of information that people at the average person can understand. That's what I did in reporting. I actually did it with the Royals a fair amount. And here in public relations, our job is to translate all of this technical medical stuff to somebody like me out on the street who isn't a medical person who can understand it. So communications and journalism is often where PR people come from. Marketing is the, is the cousin of PR, meaning that marketing is just basically taking what you're selling and coming up with a strategic way to get that information out. And so a lot of PR people will come from marketing and a lot of folks came, come from journalism because oftentimes journalists and especially TV and radio people understand what an audience needs to know and how they need to know it better than anyone. And so many, many PR and marketing people in Kansas City are former TV reporters. It's, we, we should have a club. I'm sure there is a club, but, um, but there's, a, there's a lot. So I think that that's a, that's a good way to do it. Or I have often also heard of people who have gone the route of, they've gone into a specific industry like healthcare. They love, love healthcare but they don't want to be a clinical person. And so they have sort of learned PR through the back door where they learn the business and the language of healthcare, but they have a talent or an understanding of how to communicate. And so they've slid in that way. And just one last thought. I, when I was at the Royals, you know, for the first year or two, it was just crazy fun. It was like I was experiencing something I had never experienced before. I can't believe that they pay me to do this. After a while, every job eventually starts to become routine and starts to become a job. And I had to learn that I had to, I had to like the actual work of doing public relations at a sports entertainment facility or even PR at an entertainment facility as much as I did baseball. You know, I was attracted to it because I loved the Royals since I was a little kid and I love baseball, but that can wear off after a while. And you're going to have to figure out that you like the actual work. And I, I always tell people that um, if you like a specific area, um, be sure that you also like the day-to-day -day work that it goes along with it. 
Great advice. And you've shared a lot of great advice. One, one final question. Uh, the name of this is Espresso Yourself. Um, yep. what, what ways do you kind of unwind and either espresso yourself or enjoy time outside of work? How, how do you do that? Well, you- I'm, I'm a terror. Well, my hobbies, um, we have five kiddos and we have three out of the house and two still in the house. And they're very, very active. So my wife and I have over the years realized that all of our hobbies that we used to do sort of went away and it became the kids' hobbies and the kids' activities. Um, I love, speaking of espresso, I love restaurants and I love coffee shops and I love hanging out and talking to people. And I'm I'm old enough now that I remember when I was a kid, it was like the adults that just, they want to visit. They just want to talk and I'd be so bored. Let's do something. <laughs> and and now I can't think of anything that I like better than to sitting around with a cup of coffee and talking to a friend. Um, we do go out a lot to restaurants. Um, I love concerts. I love um, performing arts. But that's probably what I've come to enjoy the most is to just sit around and chat like this. Well, that's, it's funny you say that. Um, when I was in independence, I would often see your dad having coffee with his group um, at a local, um, I, I, it may have been McDonald's or whatever that place was next to your house growing yeah. up. But um, anyway, Toby Cook, Public Relations Director for Kansas, the University of Kansas Health Systems. Thank you very much for sharing your wisdom, for uh, telling us about your journey. And I would love to sit down and have a cup of espresso with you in person sometime soon. Let's do it. Thank you, Chuck. It was it was a blast. Thanks for watching Espresso Yourself with Chuck. Please subscribe to our YouTube channel and get notified of any new episodes of Espresso Yourself with Chuck or other videos with our JAG-K program. Thank you.